welcome to Direct Correct, a Felix podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Kristen Sabo. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics, generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. The network or the group decisions take on a life of their own because like yeah. external pressures, internal pressures, et cetera. And they can lead to these sort of bad outcomes. Yeah. So everyone individually doing great as a whole, sometimes it comes together and like kind of goes to shit. It's like, I think there's like a famous Upton Sinclair quote. It's something like, it's really get hard to get a man to believe something if his paycheck tells him otherwise or something like that. Um, uh, I mean, that, that, that goes along with the idea of uh, Emperor's New Clothes. Like, yeah. we, we can ignore a lot or like we're going to bite our tongue a lot because we have uh, incentives to do so. When like, there's this weird type of environment out there that there's also like anti incentives in that space. So like, if you want to go like be a shock jock and get everybody riled up, but become like really famous really quickly, you can just say the opposite of what you're supposed to say, you know? And everybody's like, Oh my God, look at so-and-so saying the opposite. <laughs> and it's like that, that to me seems equally disingenuous as just going towing the company line you know which, which i think in the uh, economy moving forward and you see this on TikTok, uh it's all about authenticity like yeah. you can you can have like a marketing brand and it won't do nearly as well as a 13 year old with their fucking iphone because they're like we got to have a strategy meeting about how to perfectly position this brand how do we word this thing let's make a funny ad and you know let's go through committees and like did everyone agree that this is going to be funny yes we all did okay we put it out and it gets 100 views whereas a 13 year old's like i'm just gonna record something off the cuff throw it out there hundred thousand views no problem yeah. it's because it's totally authentic and the audience can tell the audience can tell that i can't remember what the hell we were talking about before that i just went on uh, yeah i was like <laughs> i'm like i agree as a guy who's never been on tiktok absolutely <laughs> <laughs> oh, you send me TikToks so of you dancing in the kitchen all the time. I do not. But I mean, are there, like, so here's here's kind of the 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 alternative stance there with the TikTok thing is, I bet you those thirteen year olds re-record that like twenty times. <laughs> I don't. I don't agree with that. I don't, don't think so. I, I think it definitely. You think happens. it's like a first take wonder every time? No, well, of course not every time. Not you know, not everything is everything all yeah. the time. But I think there's there's a lot more uh, reticence for an organization to put out something off the cuff than a lot of teenagers because oh, yeah. you watch you watch some of these clips and it's like wow this person just sitting on their floor and they just recorded this you could tell they they messed up their you know dialogue or whatever and just uh, why it is it there. popular then like is it is it funny is it catchy like what is it that makes people like, why is TikTok popular? It. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I know that's probably a dumb question, but like, why is it popular? 
Well, one, their algorithm is like fantastic for capturing what you are interested in. Uh, two, it's really authentic. Uh, three, it's ephemeral. Uh, it's very up to date, this sort of thing. And it, it feels real. It feels absolutely real. Uh, there's not a whole lot of layers of advertising and branding, this sort of thing, which I think really, really appeals to people. And here comes Kristen. There she is. How are you doing, Kristen? Good. How are y'all today? Good. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Me too. It'll be fun. Well, I, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in if you're cool with it, because uh, I wanted to hear your perspective. So in, in, in preparation for this podcast, come to learn you are of the left-handed hue, and I've been wanting to talk about what is it, what's it like being a left-handed person in the 2023 economy, and what are we getting wrong about left-handed people? And the interesting thing about left-handedness is that it's been around for millennia. Um, so I don't know that it's like economically going to drive things, but I will say we we maybe should be considered an underserved population, right? It's about 10% of the population. I'm speaking a bit facetiously. Um, we have shorter lifespans because we have higher accident rates due to things being built for right-handers. Um, and there's also research to show we tend to like, excel at creativity um, and kind of diverse thinking. So a disproportionate number of presidents are left-handed. Disproportionate number of artists and like high-impact individuals are left-handed. So just think there's something to that in terms of that neuroelasticity that's required to adapt the world around you. Um, it makes it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint as well. Like back in the day, like if you had to like fight off a warring tribe that everyone's right-handed, you get a southpaw punch. Sucker punch him with the left hand. That Come strong. picture in the game, you know? You, like, throw oh, him yeah. in, throw everyone off. You got it. Well, do you think there's, is it possible there's, like, a reverse causality thing going on here? Like, perhaps if we made the world more left-handed friendly, we would get less presidents and less artists and less creative thinking? Or it would is that just a universal good if we just made the world more left-handed friendly? I mean, it's an open question. Like, what if the Supreme Court was all females, right? Oh, yeah. What does it do in terms of the balance? It would of probably be more all? fashionable if they were, you know, let's Potentially. just let's be honest. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's an open question. But, uh, you know, the other interesting thing is my husband is also left-handed. Um, oh, what are the odds? But our children are not. Ooh, and it turns out, if genetically you look, our children were only 22%, according to some of the stats I read, likely to be left-handed. So, like, that right-handed thing holds tight, um, which also I find fascinating from a genetics perspective and also being a psychologist of, like, environment meets genes um, and how that may or may not translate into their own diversity, right? Because all of our soap. Like the soap dispensers in our bathrooms are on the left-hand side. So <laughs> sorry, kids, you're growing up in a left-handed world. <laughs> you could even make an argument. There's a left-handed bias against your right-handed children. And I mean, no, are they going to be more creative as a consequence? Right? That is fair. So they actually might experience the world as though it was flipped from a disproportionate um, handedness perspective. So how do you all handle uh, August 13th? I mean, this is National Left-Handed Day. You know, we don't actually celebrate it right oh. now. I'm a much bigger celebrator of National Ice Cream Day and National Donut okay, Day. Also, National fair. Pancake Day is a very important one. And I would say the fourth 
but perhaps the most important to me is Veterans Day because um, both my husband and I are. And there are some just like really fantastic benefits for Veterans Day, which I am in no way entitled to, but absolutely love the outpouring of support that comes and also the fun that comes from getting to plan your day around who's providing complimentary meals and thanks of service. Um, it, it can become a competitive activity to uh, figure out how you're going to chart your day and maximize that experience of free coffee, donuts, pizza, you know. So what are we like? What are we talking like? Uh, we, we don't go to the Navy tent, but we'll go to the uh, Marine tent because they offer better coffee. Is that what we're talking about? Oh, no. So restaurants and companies will give discounts on Veterans Day. Okay. So like IHOP okay. typically has a, a stack of pancakes waiting. Um, Starbucks typically has a free coffee involved. Um, Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme usually have a free donut offer as well. Um, so you just have to, you know, very much plan your day accordingly to maximize those benefits that come with service. Well, one of the things I admire about you, Kristen, is you do a lot of work in the veteran space. Um, do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, um, I'd say it's my passion area. It's both from an identity perspective, but also from an expertise perspective. And so I've been able to weave that in together, I think, in some interesting ways. But the part that I love is that it's a community that's known that they're very open to trying new things. And it's a tight community culturally in terms of the experiences they have. Um, but it's a very diverse community. And so with that, as an organizational psychologist, I've been able to lean into a lot of topics with a unique lens professionally and from an expertise perspective to really drive large scale change through strategy and policy founded in data. And that last part is this really critical foundational tenant that, you know, historically the government has actually been a great funder of incredible research um, to include the military and Hopefully that makes it into policy and strategy, but it doesn't always, right? Because there's other voices at the table. There are other things to consider in balance as well beyond just like people data or employment data um, or education data, right? And so it's been just a really fun opportunity throughout my career, both before I served in uniform and now after I've been on active duty to like really bring forward um, research and start to pull it together and help people build a narrative around how can we use research and data more meaningfully to drive large scale change in a way that's impactful, right? Not just assumed impact, but like, hey, I have a pretty good sense that we see this in the data as a trend. And so I have a pretty good sense if we enacted that change, it would have meaningful impact as opposed to an assumed impact. Well, I want to dig into that um, real quick, but I, I, let me let me introduce you also for our audience, Kristen. So Kristen Sabo, um, PhD in IO psychology. Um, she from uh, she's worked with the U.S. Army as a researcher before and is a, a veteran as well. Um, is the head of employee voice currently at Google, a professor at Georgetown University, and has done some work in the past at Boeing. Um, she's also one. Uh, she's a fellow of APA uh, for the psychologists out there. Um, has uh, won an early career award from the Society of Military Psychology and PSYOP. And she's also the co-editor of the book, Military Veterans Employment, A Guide for Being a Data-Driven Leader. So with that as, as kind of context, you, you've, you've used this word policy a few times. And um, I suspect <clears throat> that when you use the word policy, it's probably different than when I use the word policy because what comes to mind when I think of it is like HR policies, what are 
you know, what's in the employee handbook. But I suspect you're talking about policy much more broadly. Can you talk about like what role that that plays in the research that you've done in the past or, or even currently? When I talk about policy, I actually I'm talking about it at all levels. Um, policy can exist at multiple levels of a system. If you view the system systems view or an organizational view, right? So that HR policy is a fundamental policy for that environment that it's sitting in um, from a systems perspective. You can also talk about policy at a legislative perspective from a more government regulatory kind of perspective. And so I've really dealt with all of it. Um, what you have to be mindful of is policy language is different from research language and it's different from executive thinking language. Um, it's very technical, but also prescriptive and not necessarily clear at all times too. And so you have to be very artful in terms of weaving in those data points to serve a policy that then actually enacts the outcome you expect. And so a good point of this at a legislative level is stating Congress has determined that we need to build out more robust strategy or approaches for X, perhaps. So suicide prevention for instance, it's a national policy. And in that, they'll have multiple stakeholders in the room advising in terms of what should go into that policy. And what's so critical is that you have that expert from a data perspective and a people data perspective also in the room to say, well, if you want to study whether or not that program and strategy works, don't just say I need an assessment of it. Like that's not the right word that's gonna lead to the grant funding that gets the right research or, or expert funded to do the work properly. You need to explicitly say, I need a program assessment or I need this type of study conducted with this type of funding um, delivered on in order to get the proper data to actually make sure that what we're doing is working. And so when we think of high level policy and strategy, that's what I'm talking about is these really involved complex stakeholder conversations where you're making sure that single line, if you will, in the policy states the right thing in the right way to get the right people involved to do the right work. And so it, it, there's a lot of nuance and threading in there. I think when we think more locally, that's actually the exact same experience that occurs in, say, an HR policy. Um, and so it's just potentially at a smaller scale in terms of the focus you need to take or in terms of the complexity of your stakeholders involved. Maybe you don't have any stakeholders, you just get to do it. So I think at all levels, we actually can think of it very similarly. It's just the complexity and the audience and the population may shift in terms of size or extent to which it's going to be difficult to move the dial. Well, I mean, like what, what happens in that situation? Like uh, you, you talk about the size of the audience, like what, how would your perspective change if, you know, you're dealing with a, I don't know, a hundred person organization versus an uh, organization the size of Google versus the entire United States government? Yeah. Um, some ways it doesn't. People are people. Otherwise it does because with smaller populations, you can be more agile, right? Mm -hmm. You see that impact or the outcome much more quickly. And so you're able to take that in a recursive fashion and iterate faster to make adjustments over time. Um, at a much larger level, it's a bigger ship, if you will. And so it takes longer to steer that ship in a new direction. Mm -hmm. And so you have to build that into your systems as well when you're assessing metrics and data and research and program assessment to determine what's working and not is what is the pace of change I can expect to see? And in what populations might I see it faster, sooner, or later, right? In terms of that trickle out. And that's where pilot studies, that's where smaller group studies and primary research comes in before something goes large scale. I think you can also see it if you're talking at national, federal type levels, 
in smaller countries. Um, so for instance, New Zealand, in terms of their policy, particularly in healthcare, is seen as a very experimental because they're a smaller population. Um, there are a few million people. And yeah, so as a course. country, they're able to do some more progressive things because they're actually able to see how it plays out in their system faster. Um, and so you had just the size can impact the speed at which you see change occur and can impact at times the risks someone is willing to take because the risk is perceived as smaller, less visible and or easier to adjust if it doesn't go in the direction of intention. Well, so tell me this. Um, I know in your work, you do some some tr efforts to try to use science and research to influence strategy and policy, but primarily in the employee voice space. How do you do that? <laughs> I guess. Is the yeah. Question. So, you know, I think it's first important, like let's define what employee voice and listening means. It is a newer function, though one that is also predated probably most organizations, actually proper people analytics function, right? It's the survey people historically. Um, it's the folks running that annual census survey or a past engagement survey. And now it's really been built out and maturing into this really fascinating and fun place to be in an organization. Um, this kind of like your central forum of employee intelligence in many ways, if you want to think about it like that, right? You have privileged data in terms of what's in people's heads and what they're choosing to share with you. And that's fundamentally different from any other type of administrative data you might get. Um, and so it's starting to play a more and more central role in organizations and not just from like a HR or a people operations type perspective, but it, it handles communications. It's a branding effort, right? What you ask of people in terms of what they think also communicates what your priorities are. It's a strategic multiplier. If you can measure something, you can actually drive people towards that behavior. It's a nudging factor. Um, and so you start to see this listening function serve all levels in an organization in a very interesting way. And you very quickly, when you're heading up a listening team, have a pretty good sense of what's going on in a company because you know what people are saying, you know what they're asking for, and you're also seeing what senior leaders are willing to ask and what they are saying in response to that from the actions that they're taking. And so it's a, it's a really fun place to be. It's, it's almost like a mini people analytics function in terms of the types of skills you see. Um, it's a microcosm of what you'd expect to see in a larger people analytics traditional function. Um, and I am seeing across the board, this is one of the fastest growing areas in terms of the function and organizations and also the role it's playing to guide decision making and, and drive strategy and policy back to that point. Um, if you know what people want, it's much easier to deliver on it. If you haven't asked them, pretty hard to actually <laughs> run the exact thing they want. You're just making an assumption. The way you describe is like uh, in Willy Wonka, where they go into like that room with all like the chocolate river and, you know, all the berries that you can lick, all this sort of stuff. Uh, and it is true. Like it's totally different than just like standard HR practices where you're looking at, you know, standard sort of demographic metrics. I, I, I love that uh, the people analytics listening functions can get to these sort of like root causes that drive overall strategy for organizations. I think that a lot of times, like they'll sort of derail when sort of pet projects take over or like sort of like nuanced sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, information is needed, but don't necessarily drive the overall mission of the organizations. How can we combat this? Or like, is this just something from the top that needs to be mm. bubbled down or wh wh where's the I breakdown? Is, is there a breakdown? Yeah, please. Go ahead. Yeah, so I love this topic because it, it's also evident in the maturing of the function. Yes, um, absolutely. I think before it was viewed as bring those folks in after and tell me what people mm -hmm. think, right? 
now, and I'm a big advocate for this, let me in the room at the front end. Let me help devise the program and strategy that you're building and then very intentionally back into the very specific and precise measurement you need in order to drive that forward and also measure your success over time. And that now becomes the strategic multiplier that not just defines what do I need in a policy that actually meets expectations and reality, but also are we on base for you know the strategy that's built five years out? Or are we actually entirely off base in terms of what is realistically going on and where the needs are at? And so the sooner you see leaders pull a listening function and that leader really in to a conversation with that expertise of fundamentally, this is how I expect people to react to this. This is where your strengths are in the organization. This is where you need work. The sooner that gets pulled in at the front end of a strategy and policy build, the stronger that strategy and policy is going to be and the tighter it's going to be because you're actually properly giving measurement to the real thing you're doing as opposed to running in parallel processes and hoping you're measuring it with mm -hmm. precision. Yeah, it's like McNamara said, like the first rule is to, of the fog of war is to get the data. You need to understand yeah. what people are thinking before you can actually make a decision. And it's probably no surprise that I have a military background. Yeah, absolutely. Have some additional thoughts in terms of how we triangulate this information because it's somewhat fundamental to how we think about a lot of security type topics in the military. And I'm not equating that with how we handle voice because there's additional employee um, data privacy concerns that we have to have top of mind in terms of that trust we maintain with employees and how we handle the data very <laughs> securely. Mm -hmm. But it's also not undifferent when you think of the maturity of what it takes to maintain that tact um, and discernment with other types of like very secure information. Is employee listening a bad term because it kind of sounds like espionage? Like, oh, we're listening. It does a little bit. It's a little scary. Yeah. It's a little creepy sounding, right? Um, I, I do love there's different terms out there like voice. That's about more empowering kind of bottom up. Um, listening does feel a little top down, but I think it's whatever matches your environment, right? You have to be culturally relevant to the world you're in. And I always tell it like, it's sort of funny. We use the term listening because I always hear like, there's a difference between listening and hearing. Right. Mm. Did you actually mm. hear what they said or were you just listening? Quote unquote? It's so true. Um, yeah. I think active listening is the right term, Ben. Right. Like, are you actively listening to someone, which means you're not just, you know, hearing Charlie Brown's teacher in the background, like, womp, 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 but you're actually hearing it and then engaging with it and demonstrating that it matters. Well, I want to come back to something you were saying, you know, that you had some thoughts about, like how the military approaches things. Is there anything that industry can learn from how the military approaches things? Like, like I think we always think that, you know, oh, the most the like tech companies, oh, they're the most progressive companies are doing all the most cutting edge stuff. But is there perhaps other areas where cutting edge work is happening and influencing things like what we should be considering? Yeah, um, absolutely. This is what I love about having cross-sector experience is I can see some of these different threads you can pull in interesting ways and integrate. It's the power of diversity, right? Like this is why diversity helps is because it opens your mind to different ways of thinking. You know, the on the government or public sector side or military sector side, in particular with the military, I mean, we have organizations like DARPA, right? Like that is like their sole mission is to be developing things that are beyond the bounds of what we can imagine. Um, yes, tech does that too, but in a different proprietary sense. There are a few private sector companies that are truly there like, I'm just given dollars to spend on things, right? And in the government, they're budgeted to just go experiment. 
Um, and why is that? Is because that innovation sets the stage for everybody, public, private, nonprofit, to utilize that once it reaches a point of maturity. I think a great example of this we saw population wide was during COVID with the advancement of the COVID vaccine. Everyone became quite alarmed that the vaccine had been developed too quickly. But the reality was, is the stage gates that have been in place for the acquisition cycle for medical products, if you will, um, has been in place for decades. And the reality was with that development of that vaccine, a lot of those stage gates were simply collapsed on top of each other to run in parallel more efficiently. Um, it didn't mean that it was any less robust or rigorous. It just meant that they built efficiency into a system that they previously didn't have the resources to do. And so a lot of the advanced research that I'd previously done actually at my first duty station when I was in the Army, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, where they have an immunology section, was actually foundationally building out the mRNA code, for instance, on the vaccine that then ended up being rapidly developed for that current situation. So that advanced research that was forward thinking done kind of in a black box that no one needed to talk about yet, suddenly when it became needed was at the right time and the right place to do the thing it needed to do. And that's not an easy thing that you're going to find in a private sector world where profit needs to drive your strategy because you don't always have that cushion, nor do you have that bandwidth to do these other things of preventative care, if you will, um, or sustainability as we might term in current, current trends of terminology that enable you to amplify and accelerate really important work later, if and when the moment comes. And so I think that's some like fundamental differences we see in different sectors of just how they, ex how they can translate the dollars they are given to do good work into the work that they do. Um, similarly, some of the work I did with the Army and was like incredibly privileged to be a part of, it, and it's one of the reasons I joined the Army specifically as a researcher, was on performance optimization. So again, I'll reference COVID because this was this population-wide experience, but everyone suddenly was talking about how to take care of yourself, how to be more resilient, how to have grit. These are terms in, based in research that were predominantly funded through Army dollars a decade prior um, in order to build those capabilities in military and service members um, so that they could do their jobs better, right, and during hard times. And then we saw that start to trickle out in terms of more general civilian utilization um, in the late 2010s, I guess would be the term for that. And then during COVID, it was amplified and accelerated like so many other employee trends in terms of workforce management of everyone goes, this is incredibly relevant for me. I need this in my life it also now. And we saw that proliferation of that kind of skills mindset around how you better self-care, take care of yourself, have self-awareness, optimize, occur. And that was all because the government sector and military in particular had invested heavily in that research early on in a very foundational way. You know, Chris, there's lots of tracks that people can take in the field of IO. And you went from IO PhD into the Army, which is totally abnormal, right? Uh, do you have a background? <laughs> did, was, your, was your family in the military? Or like, were you recruited by PSYOPs into the military <laughs> to do some sort of I like, can't talk about that. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, are you using the PSYOPs right now? <laughs> I can't talk about that. Um, but uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, so my dad was in the Air Force. He had a very unique role. Um, basically, he was an aerospace medicine flight surgeon. So he did like, he was a physician for people who were in air. Um, you know, NASA like, type stuff. While they're flying? So your body does different things when it's not on the ground. Under different bariatric yeah. pressures. Um, you've heard about astronauts coming back down shorter or taller. Yeah. 
their organs operate differently under different pressure systems. Okay. Atrophied, atrophied muscles. Yeah, all of those I know things. we get so, weaker when you go to outer space, right? You do because you're not using your muscles in the same way. So yeah. your muscles atrophy. Um, your brain actually changes size, um, pressure and density combined with water and, you know, physical flush things. things Does it get bigger or smaller? Like when it changes? I actually size. don't remember. It's, okay. It's, it's not my expertise. Uh, <laughs> have to text the dad. Um, but the point, so he, yes, he was in the air force. I had a, you know, he had a very unique role and expertise. Um, so it's familiar to me, but it wasn't something I necessarily identified as like, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I did a lot of military funded research in grad school. I did a cultural studies funded by Congress. I worked at RAND for a period of time, the think tank. And that just kind of cued me into like, I really like driving large scale impact. And one of the best ways you can do that is to start at the base of it, which is strategy and policy and embed that with science and research. So that's kind of where it started. And I started to look around. And I was going to, I was on the fence. So I turned down an academic tenure track job in a business school, like the dream job, you know, of like getting out with your PhD and it just didn't feel right. And along the way, I realized I can go do all those other things that are on the usual list, if you will, for an organizational psychologist. I can do those things later. Military service has a tenure limit on it, like physically aged. You can't join after a certain age. And it's just like a now or never thing. And I knew I would always regret if I didn't. And quite frankly, from a purpose perspective, being at the decision-making table is the way you drive impact. Um, and there aren't very many ways to get at the decision-making table unless you have a connection. Or in this case, you put on the boots. And I was very aware of the impact of that having been working in this space that it took 15 minutes every time to explain to someone why they should listen to me as an expert. <laughs> if I put on the boots, there was no conversation. It was just... Oh, she's the doctor in the room and she's here to do it because she's also one of you. That's super interesting. Yeah. Like I finished my dissertation. I shipped off to my basic officer leadership course. It was amazing. I got to kind of like turn my brain down a bit and just like chill and learn army um, for several months. I then went to my first duty station four months in. They told me I was going to Afghanistan to do a study on behalf of the chief of staff of the army. And two months into that experience in Afghanistan, I was sitting at the war room table with General Milley, who is our now former Joint Chief of Staff, advising him on leadership and mental health of troops while deployed. Um, and I came back and I, I spent some more time at my first assignment and then they sent me to the Pentagon to lead large scale research portfolio work and integration, again, for strategy and policy oh, for risk taking and resilience. So. It just, it got me to where I wanted to go purposefully and also serve this other role of right time and right place, which I'm just incredibly fortunate to have been able to be in a situation of right time and right place um, in terms of also being the right person to do it. Well, that even led to, you're in like a really exclusive leadership program, aren't you? I don't. It's a unique leadership program that I've gotten to participate in. So um, after I left the army. I headed over to Boeing. Um, and one of my first roles there was standing up and being part of a talent strategy team to swim upstream, do things different. And one of the things I got to write was their veterans and military spouse talent strategy, which I have expertise in veterans employment as evidenced by the fact I have a book on it. And so I got to write that using all of the best practices. I was a kid in a candy store. I was like, oh, you need a strategy on this? Here you go. Two weeks later, I have it for you. And they're just like, where are you coming from? Like, what in the world? I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. <laughs> it's like, oh, you need one? No problem. Let me build it. 
Um, very much like in the Lego movie where the guy who like always builds the spaceship finally gets to build the spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. But it also allowed me to get on the map with a different group of people and start to be seen as a national leader in the space. Um, and that then allowed me to be selected by President um, George W. Bush's Institute has a few different leadership programs. Um, and one of them is for folks in the veterans and military space enacting change over time and really investing in those leaders of the future and now to make sure that that network is strong to continue like civic engagement. And so I got to participate in that in 2019. Phenomenal program, incredible network, very tight network as well. And I just am constantly humbled by looking around the room of like, I know that person that did that. I'm so, I'm so thrilled they're still talking to me because I'm just me. Um, but just continued engagements with that group is just, um, I think more than anything, it, it gives you a platform to feel confident in your capability that sometimes awards and other types of those experiences will do. And I just, I was lucky and was selected that year. Um, and again, just incredibly fortunate that I was able to take the opportunities when they were given to me, which of course takes planning, but also involves a bit of luck. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't call you lucky at all. I mean, you have a really <laughs> interesting set of experiences that are incredibly unique as far as I'm concerned. And goodness gracious, you are like passionate, intelligent, and you've got these wild things that, that I feel like it's just really admirable. And so I, I'm really glad you're here, Kristen. But, um, with all that nice things said about you, you want to join us in the confusion matrix? Oh, I can't wait. The confusion matrix. All right, here we go. Okay, Kristen, this is straight from chat GPT. I asked it to uh, devise five questions for you, loosely based on uh, military experience. Okay, you ready? Uh, okay, alien invasion plan. Stick to the manual or improvise? Oh. I would need more information than that. Oh, you can't play the no, Gotta go along with it, Kristen. It that's not an it depends. It's a uh, trust but verify. Um so okay, speaking okay. to any military uh, out there, they know that term. The um, aliens have lasers. They have lasers. They're getting all of us. Well, and do we have a plan? Like what plan would that This be? turns the Waffle House already. Here we go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to say improvise. You seem like you're thinking on your feet. I think I'd be improvising because I wouldn't okay. trust a plan that didn't know <laughs> the aliens, unless the aliens were already here. But it's it's kind of like predictive modeling. Like, what are you modeling off of if it didn't exist before? Uh, okay. Problem uh, of induction. Gear inspection. I know, yeah. yeah. Uh, everything is in place or just good enough? Say that one again. Yeah. Okay. Gear inspection day. Everything in place or just good enough? Everything in place. Okay. Okay. Uh, reunion with your unit. Uh, first to share stories or happy just to listen? I think I know happy the to this listen. One. Yeah. Uh, new recruit training. Uh, strict mentor or family coach? Friendly coach. Pardon me. Friendly coach. And finally, uh, unexpected drill, uh, thrive under pressure or prefer a, a heads up? Thrive under pressure. There you go. That wasn't so bad. Did you have like a six pack when you went through all that stuff? Like, were you in incredible shape? I was in better shape than I am now. 
Yeah. But I'm still I'm still in the reserves, actually. So I still have to I'm still required to pass my physical fitness test and be weighed and measured okay. uh, at least once a year. <laughs> so those are also requirements and like a you very odd experience. It. Yeah. Like we talk about each other's weight. It goes on my like performance evaluation. Right. You don't really see that in other sectors. Um Maybe in first in first responder sectors, you do. It's like when I see a job description for like a desk job and it's like may have to lift 35 pounds every so often. It's like, I'm pretty You're sure like, oh. it's like, is this relevant? <laughs> this doesn't seem relevant. Yeah, I, I do love when they have to identify the physical requirements and they're like, may have to push paper every yeah. few days, may end up with a paper cut. And you're like, all right, I can handle that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Do we want to do we want to do some uh, some nerdery, Scott? Let's do some nerdery. The nerdery. Where do you want to start? I um, I I wanted to show something. Let me pull it up really quick, um, because I thought this was interesting, especially Kristen, because of some of the research that came out a while ago about psychological safety. Uh, Peter Capelli, who I believe is at uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, had an article that he just published and he, he pr he's promoting it on LinkedIn about psychological safety. And what he and his colleagues have, have come to find is that perhaps there are limits to the use of the concept of psychological safety at work. And, and what he's talking about is like, maybe it's really just helpful in the creative context where people take risks. But most of our jobs at most companies really aren't that circumstance all the time. And so perhaps it is, is proliferated and actually becomes unhelpful in certain situations um, when rules are defined. And so you're not taking a risk if you're just breaking a rule <laughs> out and out. And, you know, it's you can't your retort, you know, necessarily shouldn't be, well, this is creating an unpsychologically safe environment for me being punished for breaking a rule. It's like, no, you're breaking the rule. Come on, <laughs> like, stop it. And so uh, I thought this was really interesting, but it's titled, um, or it came out in uh, Organizational Behavior and Human Decision Processes. Had you guys come across this? What are your What are your thoughts on this kind of new revelation in terms of what's going on with psychological safety? Because I think for a while, and I think this is why it's sort of, um, I'm not going to call it a bombshell, but definitely revelatory, is because psychological safety was seen as this huge kind of revelation that came out, uh, you know, maybe a decade ago. It's like, okay, this is really going to be kind of a panacea cure-all for creating better cultures, creating better ideas, creating productivity, and the like. And so kind of seeing this was was very interesting to me. It, it is an interesting perspective because it, it's a continuum. We, we typically treat it binary. Like you either got psychological safety or you don't. Right. And there are certain uh, avenues like, you know, creative aspects, like you said, where you do need to be able to take risks in a safe environment to fail and just be understood that, hey, we're just trying things. But once again, you don't need uh, or don't want someone taking a whole lot of risk in your finance and doing some creative accounting, this sort of thing. Right. Uh, so I, th I think it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. There's a Goldilocks zone to this sort of thing. And just like every other sort of construct we have, there's uh pathological low and high on both ends of the spectrum so i haven't read the entire article but i do think that everything works in moderation yeah and even with psychological safety there has to be certain norms of behavior right mm -hmm. like 
it's great if you feel psychologically safe, but you go around your workplace saying things that are incredibly offensive, right? Or racist. Like it's not okay to be psychologically safe and say some of those things, right? Like there are boundary cases to your point, like guardrails that you do need to think about of, well, there's also appropriate and respectful and too much of something can lead to someone being a little too comfortable maybe. Um, (laughs) That's a great point. That's a great point because like fear is a motivator, right? It makes you get out of bed and this sort of thing. And like, if you have too much psychological safety where you fear nothing, eh, your motivation could wane quite a bit, right? Well, and you know, there's something to be said for having a filter. Um, No, I'm saying having a, not a filter in which you state things incorrectly or lie or or tact. Right. But there's something to be said for like, hey, not everyone needs to know everything around you. And I think, too, we see this with any construct, right? Like the extremes are extremes. We generally are talking about the middle in terms of the concept. But I think sometimes that gets lost as concepts grow their own legs in a public forum. And so I think that goes for psychological safety. Same thing for the concept of authenticity, right? Like love authenticity, but sometimes it may not serve you to be fully authentic in terms of like, oh, that was awful. And I'm an authentic leader, so I will tell you. Right? Yeah, real goes Maybe wrong. that wasn't the best approach. Nice Chappelle show reference. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So um, I think with all things, it comes in moderation. Psychological safety is fundamental, but I do wonder if we're more so just talking about fundamental trust, which is, I think, uh, maybe the more appropriate concept sometimes when you think about the moderation of psychological safety in a yeah. way where you trust someone else. Or like, or like norm. It's like, what are and the norms, norms of just, norms. yeah, everyday social interaction, like what, like what's considered outside the pale and, you know, maybe, maybe don't go there if you're trying to, you know, get along with your coworkers. <laughs> yeah. Right. So like maybe too much psychological safety without norms, scary yeah. place to be. Um, trust is a good place to be because it also with respect is good, right? Because it means that you can have honest conversations with people and more foundationally know they'll still be there, even if you disagree. And also you have the respect to recognize that if you are going to hurt somebody else, that would be taking it too far. Um, Like you can have fascinating civil discourse, vastly disagree, Mm -hmm. but you do have to have that self-respect. And so I think sometimes the psychological safety to the point of what we're talking about we have to think about it in that framework of what are some of the other boundary conditions that enable appropriate um, psychological safety. I love what you were saying about the Goldilocks zone kind of too, because the article didn't talk about this at all, but I kind of saw this, this general transition in the workplace with psychological safety being at the forefront of leading to too much like unnecessary positivity in which what I hear people talking about often nowadays is what they call toxic positivity. Right. So you're like saying everything's great when it's not great. <laughs> like it's, it's objectively not great, but, and everybody kind of has to rally around normatively to like collectively say things are great as like a passing some kind of like test, you know, <laughs> like, is that just like when, the norms that are created? Like yeah, we, yeah, we have the norm normatively reinforced. And so, I, I really, I think you, you said it best, Kristen, about like, you've got to have this kind of Goldilocks zone because if you go too far down the positivity train, 
I mean, you're almost in a cult at that point, but you know, like it's, it's not, it's not ideal for anyone as much as being too negative all the time would probably feel the same way. Well, we actually talk about that toxic, toxic positivity and like performance optimization conversations. And this actually got met muddied kind of the concept of resilience itself. There was this perception of like, if I'm resilient, I'm always good. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's actually not what we're talking about. We're talking about simply recovering and bouncing back when things get crappy, right? And figuring out how to like just get through and get to the other place. And that's a really messy experience. So assuming that you're just going to be positive because a horrible thing happened or a difficult thing happened is a misunderstanding of how you should behave as a human. It is actually more of a resilient behavior in that instance to maybe be in a bad mood and get through and understand that. And then over time, see the growth that you can gain from that experience. And so I think like that positivity um, shift, positivity mindset kind of that became this hyper focus where everyone just needed to smile and find the good in everything. It was like, that's actually maladaptive also and can lead to other types of trauma where you forget the actual experience and don't handle it. And so I, I love that you bring that up because that's actually been a, a big conversation amongst folks in the performance psychology world um, around trying to like rebalance that conversation. It's not about always being happy or always trusting someone, even though you generally trust someone. Like you still have to like be aware of your surroundings and your context and mm -hmm. have situational awareness and emotional intelligence, if you want to use that term, to like gauge your behavior and adjust how you're interacting with the world. And, and find ways to make the most of it. But making the most of it doesn't always mean you're happy about it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes making the most of it is actually being unhappy about it and finding a way through it. And so those nuances are really important as we dive deeper into some of these constructs that again, kind of go viral. Um, and then we have to kind of pull it back and be like, whoa, 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 the original thing that we were talking about was this, and this is why it's important. And those other conditions, maybe we took too far. Yeah. I will say that like one of my best bosses, he would give like four compliments and then like one devastating criticism. And it just kind of kept, <laughs> kept us all in balance, right? Probably Friday at five as well. Yeah. It's like, and that week on a Not necessarily. cutting note. But like definitely like if, if you've messed up, you know, you were told as such. So you could never like get too high on that psychological safety to mm, the point where you could just yeah. start do whatever you want to do. Well, tell me, tell me if you guys um, empathize with this. I, I don't know if this is just a me thing or if I think most people feel this way, but when it comes to like really cutting criticism, um, because I mean, sometimes it's warranted. Like if you're doing something like terribly wrong, you probably need some kind of course correction to fix it. I prefer that to come from myself first rather than somebody else who doesn't necessarily have standing in my life to come and just say, oh yeah, you're awful. <laughs> like correct everything about yourself. I would prefer to do that for myself first and then have it come from someone else second. Is that like a core human thing or is that just a me thing? Give us an example. I mean, Give us an example. I don't, I don't think I understand. Like if you... Well, I think about like your boss, the reason why it triggered you is you were saying your boss gave you like four compliments and then just yeah. said something that cut to the core of you. Um, what I want in a, in a manager is like them leading the horse to water, right? They're saying, hey, have you can, instead of just saying you're awful in the following ways, <laughs> they say like, hey, have you considered this? 
Um, you know, what are you thinking in this way? What's kind of the internal narrative that you're having around this topic? Because like, is there a delta between what's in your head and how good you really are in reality? And if that's the case, then we can work on that. But instead of just saying, you really suck today. And uh, I, I just don't think that that's super helpful most of the time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any sort of like broad criticism like that, <laughs> like you're, you suck, yeah. is, is helpful in yeah, any way. Thing, and that's why I use the example. I actually sometimes tell myself, man, you really suck today. But it doesn't hurt as bad as if somebody said, said that to me. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm just yeah. not explaining it right. Self versus other feedback. <clears throat> yeah. I think it probably depends on the person and the context. Like, in the military, there is brutal accountability. Like, yeah. oh my, yeah. you will hear it. But it's also just part of the culture. Um, not saying it's okay, always. Yeah. Like, it, it does cut at times. But I, I would say... Is it adaptive, at least? Like, is it like... I think there's some adaptiveness. But I think the other thing is, too, like, if you have a really trusted relationship with someone that gives you feedback, and by and large, the feedback is constructive, if they see something... I mean, I would rather they said something to me and didn't leave it mystical as to what they were saying. Yeah. Like, hey, Kristen, you could have done better in that meeting today. Let's do better next time. Okay, cool. Thanks. Like, at least that's specific. So I know what was up. Yeah. yeah. You're the specific point you're talking about. I, I think there's something in the middle. But Cole, I think what you're describing is kind of like manager as coach, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, or maybe and I'm then there's the other part, too, of like the manager who gives you feedback, but kind of masks it and helps you get to it. And then later you go, oh, was that actually like really mean? Like what, did they mean to apply that? And you like process it later and you're like deeply affected. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that that's much better either. So. Yeah, you're right. You're not wrong. That's that's a really interesting point. You're also relying on people's self-awareness, which I've come to find is <laughs> wildly absent in a lot of people. True. You do always have to question that source. Like, are they seeing enough of the whole picture to really know it? If, like, is the feedback valid? I guess is the question you always have to ask yourself. Oh, I think this is a good segue into the next nerdery topic. Let's go to that perceived listening. Yeah, yeah. Let's oh. let me pull that up real quick. So, I think that I, I just I came across this and and I knew you were coming on the podcast, Kristen. I was like, oh, we got to talk about this with her. Um, so in the Journal of Business Psychology, um, and there's quite a few authors on this, but the first one's last name is Kluger. They wrote an article called uh, A Meta-Analytic Systematic Review and Theory of the Effects of Perceived Listening and Work Outcomes. And really what they go through here is they're just trying to answer the age-old question about are these employee listening programs related to stronger work affects specifically things like relationship quality and job performance and, and the like on the job. And, and what they find is uh, through all these studies, that it's actually a pretty sophisticated analysis because I think it's really like three meta-analyses, not really just one. But they, they, they find that there are these relationships. And, and they say these, they're not sure if these are causal relationships, which is still kind of the age-old question. But just knowing that there's a relationship between things like these employee listening programs and job performance, I think that that's a really important finding for us to have if we're investing in this space as heavily as we are. Um, I don't know, from your perspective, Kristen, I'd love for you to weigh in here on, on seeing this and, and, and what it, how it relates to the work that you do. Yeah. I think a little, we're seeing a little bit of like the Hawthorne effect, like one of the original concepts in organizational psychology come out of 
when you shine a little light on something, it can change the performance of that thing. Um, I think too, it's empowering for people to be seen and heard, right? Everyone wants acknowledgement. And I think if you do voice or listening initiatives well, it gives that acknowledgement to someone's experience. And then, and this is the critical part of doing it well, is you show action on that feedback on the back end. And sometimes no action is the action, just communicating back, like we heard your feedback, these are the things we considered. This is ultimately where we landed, but I am gonna give you that organizational justice as the concept right there in terms of understanding how we got to that decision. And um, that's really powerful for people, right? To see the connection of what they put in impacting the experience that they have every day. And that to me is this ultimate, ultimate like listening to action cycle that's so critical that makes things successful but also pulls people in. It's almost classic change management, right? Like you got to keep people involved to want to do the change. And so I see listening, the better we get at it in terms of technology and capabilities and mechanisms to better understand those trends, the more people are going to be able to see themselves in the decisions their organization makes. And I don't, I mean, I feel like everybody probably loves that. Like everyone wants to get acknowledged for the experience that they want, right? Um, and no one really wants that environment where like, oh, the talking heads at the top of my company decided to do this and no one agrees with them. Like that's a reason to leave. So, I mean, that's my belief. Not everyone's doing it well and not all of us are always going to do it well, right? Like we have missteps, but I, I do think it's an important touch point when you do it well and when you take it seriously and prioritize the feedback you're getting. I mean, like, go, go figure. You actually listen to your employees and it turns out positive, right? Right. In, in this case, a 0.44 correlation between uh, feeling perceived listening and performance. I think what the interesting aspect is, is the higher correlation between perceived listening and relationship quality with your leader, right? You mm -hmm. get like sort of a narrower focus here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say, it gives leaders somewhere to start a conversation too. One that's actually relevant to the employee, right? Yeah. Leader gets data and now they go, oh, I should talk about this, not this. Because this other thing isn't the thing people care about. This is the thing people care about. And it, it just makes, it, it's, it's a form of active listening, right? Demonstrating that you heard someone and then responding with an appropriate response um, in reply, as opposed to a random response demonstrating you weren't listening. When, and I don't know if there's some synchronicity or something going on here, Kristen, but you brought up the Hawthorne studies and I've been thinking a lot about how like there's a lot of this like electronic performance monitoring that's going on right now. It's like a really hot topic and how that's basically like the Hawthorne effect that we're seeing. It's like if people are being monitored all the time, yeah, maybe you'll see some boosts in performance, but it's going to have some alternative outcomes and I actually came across a, a meta-analysis that just came out about this in PSYCH. Um, and it the the relationship between electronic performance monitoring and work outcomes from Daniel Rabbit and a few other folks. But what did they find? I mean, this is like the biggest like slam dunk. Oh, I totally expected to find this and this is what I found. <laughs> and it says, results provide no evidence that electronic performance monitoring improves worker performance but they do find that it makes people feel worse. <laughs> like, mm. so, and that the less invasive um, that these, these kind of methods are, 
the more positive attitudes are for workers. So basically workers are saying, the less you watch me, the happier I am. The more you watch me, the less happy I am. But ultimately it doesn't affect my performance. And just like, ah, finally, somebody got some real scientific research on some of this stuff. So thank goodness. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to differentiate between like electronic monitoring mm-hmm. and what maybe a good listening program looks like. Like listening should oh, be and I'm monitoring. not trying to equate those two things at all. Yeah, really. no, I know you're not. I I just think like when we think about those from an organizational sense, I do think that there's a lot of squishiness in people that don't see the difference. And one is more of a forced, it might be voluntary, but it's kind of not voluntary. It's the things existing in the background that you don't know are happening. Versus listening, ideally, is someone coming to join you in a conversation and engage. Um, But I mean, you know, electronic monitoring isn't going to do well in terms of building trust. Well, I mean, true. We we are conflating a couple different things, but uh, this meta-analysis does suffer from common method bias. Like we're both doing self-measure, so perceived listening plus relationship quality. Uh, we're going to have an inflated correlation in this sort of situation. What we really need is sort of like a didactic relationship or analysis mm-hmm. of the leader and the subordinate, whatever you want to call it, yeah. and their listening perceptions. I remember we had this professor in graduate school that didn't believe common method bias exists. I'm like, well, that's fine if you don't believe it, but those correlations go up. I see it every time. So It's a strong trend. Yeah, it's definitely there's something there. Well, uh, Kristen, it's been good having you on the podcast today. Um, thank you so much for being our guest. And uh, Scott, any final words for Kristen? Uh, Kristen, thanks so much for coming on. Take care. Thanks. It's been a joy. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and Kristen Sabo. Thanks, Kristen. Thank you. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. 